Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good morning everybody and welcome to another edition of Keep Left, the programme of the Victorian Labour College. In the studio is John Lafferty. Good morning everybody. Uh, Kim Doyle. Hi everyone. And myself, Chris Gaffney. Now, you're going to start, I think, Kim? Yes. Well, Christopher the Fixer Pine is having a little trouble getting the Liberals' university deregulation bill through the Senate, people may have noticed or delighted in. It has failed each time he's introduced it, and he's becoming increasingly desperate, and some might add a little unhinged. In an interview on Monday on Sky News, Pine turned to comedy, which admittedly is not his strong suit, to try and make whatever point it was he was trying to make, which was a bit of a mystery to the rest of us, dubbing himself the fixer. During the interview in which he announced that the 1,700 research jobs he had threatened the day before were magically no longer under threat, um, he announced this, although it how exactly he fixed the problem um, is still unclear. Speaking on ABC program Insiders on Sunday morning, Pine said the research jobs were inextricably linked to the government's deregulation measures, indicating the jobs would go unless the Senate passed the deregulation bill. But on Monday, Pine suddenly declared he had cleared away the problem by uh, finding $150 million in funding in extra funding, and God knows where he's pulled that from. When the Sky News reporter David Spears oppressed Pine on the source of the money, he interjected, I am the fixer, in a <laughs> sort of manic-like way. That's the it's still in Jimmy Savile, is it? He, he, he claimed, uh, I fixed it by funding it another way, uh, which you will find out in the budget. And it's much better if you imagine this in Pine's weaselly little private schoolboy voice, which unfortunately I am physically incapable of doing. So you're just going to have to imagine. Alexander Downer School. Yes, Alexander Downer. The Alexander Downer School of Liberal Parties. Yes, yes a very it's impertinent, naughty little boy. Naughty little boy and went to a public school and wants everybody to know it. Mm. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Anyway, uh, when asked by the interviewer if he could clarify the source of the funding, the education minister laughed and said, I want it to be a surprise for you. Mm. Which... It's oh, not he's a creepy trickster. at he's all. A <laughs> it's also incredibly he's a creepy. Fun guy. It's not a fixer, he's a trickster. I think he was trying to be fun, but it just comes off as creepy. Creepy, yes. <laughs> the government's backflip has already sparked memes on social media, I'm sure everyone's delighted to know, including fictional movie posters, uh, which are photoshopped from action movies. Of, mm. They just photoshop Pine's head on it and uh, put the headline, The Fixer, and he's got some giant gun and he looks all um, terrifying and also Weasley at the same time. All his fantasies in one. Yes, yes exactly. <laughs> Personally, I imagine him as a sort of Riddler character. Yes, from, a bit of a Batman, Batman yeah. bad guy. Yeah, 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 as in also kind of a bit pathetic and now that he's taken to speak and speaking exclusively in riddles. Um, <laughs> but the opposition made merry in the Senate, directing questions to Christopher the Fixer Pine 
even Julie Bishop turned to her fellow frontbencher and asked in laughing surprise, did you really say that? <laughs> yeah, Julie's doing a good job here uh, with our PR campaign. Yes, she week. is, <laughs> making sure she gets heard, I suppose, on Question Time. So in Question Time, when um, Bill Shorten probed, what exactly in higher education has the fixer fixed? Which, unfortunately for Bill, really just opened himself up to the whole we're fixing Labor's debt and deficit mm. rhetoric. But um, so that he got a bit of that from Abbott, but um, Pine cheerfully chimed in, proudly boasting, I'm fixing Labor's failures because I am a fixer. So he's not backing down from no, this. No. Despite um, Pine's deluded daydreams of comic book uh, villainy infamy, Pine's so called reforms aren't so funny. So despite the widespread derision, prior to the Senate defeat, Pine, like a good Hollywood villain, um, set the scene for a sequel. Well, actually, it would be the second sequel now. Prequel? Son of. Son of. He said that he would never give up and ended an interview with today's Karl Stefanovic with the ominous and very strange statement, you couldn't kill me with an axe, Karl, and I'm going to keep coming back. He's been um, talking to Arnie because Arnie's in town. He was here for the Grand Prix. Oh, is he? Oh. I think he's doing. He's been watching too much. He's been watching too many action films. Yeah. Maybe that should be what he just does twenty four hours a bloody day. I know it's a lot funnier than when he tries to be funny. So mm. now, like, it almost sounds like a challenge actually, and maybe there's some truth to it actually because I can kind of imagine Pine as one of those blow up uh, oh, clown dolls that you punch and they just keep coming back up, but. Maybe it's just me. What do you mean, imagine? That's, what <laughs> That's exactly what it is. Um, <laughs> it's reality. Immediately after the bill was voted down, he said, we will bring um, back the higher education reform package for the p- parliament to consider. We will not give up. This reform is too important. Now, the bill has been changed a number of times since it's been blocked in the Senate. Um, uh, since it was blocked in the Senate the first time round, which was actually late last year. As an apparent sweetener to the crossbenchers, Pine proposed what he called a compromise... Uh, which would cut subsidies to universities if they increase fees over a certain amount. And this is actually worse in many ways because just imagine that you're a university and there's a certain level of... If you charge a certain fee amount, then you get taxed on it. Well, the incentive then is just to tax... is just to actually increase um, fees wildly because, well, if you get your funding cut, well, then you may as well increase them hugely. So in some ways, um, some of their so-called sweeteners are worse. So you could be looking at, you know, $200,000 degrees instead of $100,000 degrees or whatever. $100,000 over what period? I I don't understand that. Well, they've done modelling just with, and I guess it's looking at the American system as well, and they're saying that once you lift uh, the, the amount that you're allowed to charge, it's basically open to the free market. Free market. Yeah. yeah. And so if you're Melbourne University or Sydney University, you can raise your fees. They charge more, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then obviously they don't – there's that two-tiered system where working-class people go to these um, small colleges like in the US and they end up with debt, but their degree doesn't mean anything. So it's, mm. you know, essentially really anti-working class. And I think working-class people have uh, – are quite against it. And the whole – None of this worked anyway. He even tried separating the bill into uh, fee deregulation and a separate one on the funding cuts to university to try and get it through that way. But that also failed. Um, But as I slated, Pine is not giving up. It's not in his little cockroach nature. 
And despite the fact that it seems unlikely that feed deregulation will pass in this parliament, there is um, the privatisation of higher education has never been contingent on the passage of just one bill. So even if we manage to stave this off, we're going to have to keep fighting. And Belinda, well, both Labor and Liberal well, are essentially yes, exactly. in favour of it, aren't they? Yeah, well, Labor, the only reason that they have why they're opposing it, I think, is the public pressure on them and the fact that they can make political gains, gains with this. Yes. Payne's making a big deal out of, uh, you know, coming back and trying this and trying this. Basically, he's just trying to do his job, which so far he's failed to do. So what's the big deal? Get on with it, you know, keep trying. Well, he we'll can't keep, get on with we'll it because keep it's resisting. too unpopular. Yeah, well, we'll, right. we'll keep resisting. But, I mean, making a big deal out of, you know, him making a big deal out of saying, well, I'm going to come back, I'm going to keep trying. Well, you should be. You've, you've failed. His failed has won ruling class before. Mm. Yeah. And, and Belinda Robinson, uh, who's the chief, exec- chief executive of the Vice-Chancellor's Lobby Group, Universities Australia, made their determination to get deregulation through quite clear in a press release that was issued after the defeat of the bill and she said the almost year-long debate has achieved a remarkable political consensus consensus and she wasn't talking about the consensus against the bill um she said that um the that basically everyone agreed that the current state of public investment in universities is insufficient for maintaining and enhancing the quality expected by students employers and the community And the Business Council of Australia has also recently made a similar statement and it says, we cannot afford to squander any more opportunities for reform. The government should take a step back and take this chance to get the reform right. And the government's... um, They think that the government's intent for the reform is right, but changes are needed uh, to the package. It needs now... Um, it needs to bring the right people together uh, for a market design, safeguards and the right transition. So basically they want market solutions. Of course. Which is what this is all about. Yes. Um, and it's already the case that students in Australia are paying some of the highest fees in the OECD and that two-thirds of students are living below the poverty line already in Australia. So what the government really wants is a US education-style system in Australia and... Education is not going to be safe until we get rid of the idea of market solutions. Yes. Um, And there's, uh, well, at least there's going to be still some ongoing resistance by students next week. There's another National Day of Action on Wednesday. So look out for that in the news. All right, John. Okay, so uh, thanks for that, Kim. And I couldn't agree more. Uh, I was going to speak a little bit about the March 4th rallies. Uh, The week before last, on March the 4th, the ACTU organised simultaneous rallies throughout Australia to protest the federal government's workplace relations agenda. The mood at the biggest rally, which was in Melbourne, was upbeat and roads were blocked off as people converged outside Young and Jackson's pub chanting, this is what democracy looks like. According to the Fashionable Age newspaper, a massive crowd marched from Carlton to Federation Square. In a further show of positivity, I received an email from Ged Kearney and Dave Oliver of the ACTU stating, quote, The day of action was a huge success. There were nearly 100,000 of us in 17 cities and towns across Australia. A massive crowd, a huge success. Less than 100,000 people out of a total of over 23 million. And that's according to the organisers. I'm all for positive thinking, but I'm also all for honesty. 
This huge success was less than 0.4% of the population. For every person who marched, 230 didn't bother. One in 230 is a flop. This is not the first time SETU rallies have failed to inspire the rank and file of the working class. In 2006, an attempt to fill the MCG to protest, very similar, to protest against John Howard's industrial policies also flopped. Only a half of the MCG's capacity, the capacity is 100,000, only about 50,000 actually uh, arrived. But that, though, that, though, nationally, hang on, uh, though nationally the figure reached 300,000. So, well, hang, hang on a second. 300,000 down to 100,000 in the past nine years. So these mobilisations are rapidly shrinking. What are you going to say? Oh, I was just going to say the one with the, at the MCG. Yeah. One reason why I think the attendance was low because the, re- the rally was really get the Labour Party back into power yeah, rally. Yeah, that's they changed right, that's the slogan right. to, you know, your rights at work. Yeah, that's it's, right. It's, well, well, yeah, I'm going to that. They moderate, it's, yeah. Okay, it's fine. ACTU slash ALP, AGE, ABC, organised. Okay, I'll get to that in a second, more briefly. Now, compare these numbers to, just as an example, the French demos this January to protest against the savage right-wing killings of the Charlie Hebdo workers. An estimated 3.7 million to 4.4 million took part in these demos with only a few days' preparation. In the context of the French population, that's 6% of the total. For every one person who participated, 18 didn't. Now, if you use the formula, and I don't know where this formula comes from, but I'm sure you've heard about it. If you use the formula for every one who showed, there were about 10 who sympathised. These pro-free speech and free expression rallies represented a clear majority of the people. That's really what democracy looks like. The turnout in Sydney was even worse. This is, this is pathetic, this is. The actual organisers said that only 10,000, one in 400, every 470, had bothered to show. This in a state where alongside Tony Abbott's reactionary regime in power, the New South Wales government has a similar economic platform and a determination to privatise public assets. Not only that, New South Wales has an election in just over a week. 10,000 out of 4.7 million is a huge failure. I asked a what mate of mine if he'd gone to the Melbourne rally and he said he would have done if he'd known it was on. He lives right here in Fitzroy and he has all the usual access to media information, yet the demo passed him by. I suspect there are many more like him. Then again, could it be that some didn't go because it was an ACTU initiative? But seriously, here in Fitzroy, I mean, a few posters around the place. I know we broadcast it. He, he maybe doesn't listen to this recently. Probably doesn't. Now, I'm not saying here that Ged Kearney and the ACTU haven't done some good work. Kearney, yet again this week, has been pushing for better entitlements for casual workers, and for that, I think she should be applauded. And the ACTU leader isn't, you know, it's not the position it used to be. It used to be a very powerful and very influential position, and it's not these days. What seems to be at major fault, as I see it, is the organisation of these events. I'm reliably informed that the date was chosen because there was some conjecture over the date. The date was chosen because some bright spark thought that March 4, that's for the number, sounded like March 4, that's F-O-R the word. Sounds like the same Einsteins who dreamed up Kevin 07, thinking that Kevin and 7 rhymed. Are those who changed the last federal election date from September 14th to September 7th for much the same reason? Say that was Kevin Rudd and his massive ego. 
Everybody knows of Australia's, uh, the Australian's reputation for political conservatism and or apathy. In cases like this, it really would have been preferable to have no rally there than such a weak one. However, for the ACTU leadership to then call a defeat a victory, as this, at the same time as we're subject to similar Gallipoli mythology, calls for a response. Overall, I have my own theories as to why the working class feel so disengaged from our political industrial leaders. We can point to the ACTU ALP careerists and their inability, or could be at lack of desire, to mobilise people. We can point to PC middle-class academics who claim left credentials, yet fail to address working-class people directly. They rarely listen to us, and could hardly lead a dog to a bone. Seriously, if people are not born and bred and presently of the working class, who are they to lead? Of course they can sympathise with our cause, but they can have no true understanding or loyalty to that cause. We need rank-and-file leadership of our own class and our own class interests. Otherwise, and this is the fact, and this is the future as I see it, otherwise these mobilisations will become ever weaker and more ineffectual. Well, it's a bit of a pessimistic look there, and I it's think... Honest, uh, it's uh, honest. Yeah, but honest doesn't necessarily mean right. Because uh, I think, that the, com- I think <laughs> the comparison right. with France is, is misguided because actually this was a union mobilisation, whereas those rallies are quite different. Also, the history in France is different. And that I, fa- I think the fact that the ACTU, even though you could say that them and are quite responsible for, you know, have been for killing off um, working class mobilisations mm-hmm. in the recent history of Australia, the fact that they are calling it is a good start, I think. Well, no, nine, nine years ago, there was a figure of 300,000 nationally for a very, very similar call-out. And this year, they're bragging about 100,000. Our population's gone up, and yet this is diminished by your thought. I, I, now, I, so, so, I, mean, I, know, I know France's history, and I know it's a different cause, but it was very much spontaneous. It was in a few days in France, and it was massive, massive. But, I mean, 100,000 nationally... That's well, gone down to a me, lot. So. To me, my explanation for it, what, the, what you pointed out is uh, sadly true. And I think mm. it's... Be- it's true. Oh, yeah. Just, just calm down. Calm down, comrade. It's true, though. Yes, okay. You said All just right. before it wasn't true. Well, uh, <laughs> Go on, go on. It, it's true. In the, I think the problem is that the leadership of these rallies as they're being held, they don't want to win. They don't want to win. They want to put up a show, mm. a token a token of resistance that's easily contained, that doesn't mobilise the working class, that doesn't encourage the working class to take its own initiative. In other words, these protests are being led by the bureaucratised Labour movement who wants to keep things limited to the re-election of a Labour government, just as they did 10 yes. years ago. I and agree. I think, too, that um, it's we know that you know the levels of industrial action and working class militancy have declined, but... But I don't think it's better to have had no rally at all because you've got to build that up from somewhere. You know, you can't just compare it to the way it was you've, and say you've got we to, failed. Wait, 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 look, you can go back, not just go back nine years, you could go back 20, 30, 40 years. And, I mean, you know, you know this. You'll see things have been shrinking. Now, you're alluding to the fact that they don't want the working class mm. mobilised. They simply want us to turn up at the next election and vote Labour, right? Should we even bother going to we these We should use rallies? anything that they do should that's to our CCR, advantage. Should we in 3CR even bother? But it's not to our advantage. Yeah, getting people in the street always is no, for the left. No, 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 no. 
it's not to our advantage, right? If, you, if, if, if it's on the mass media and the 230 people are watching the one who's out there marching and are thinking, gee, that's a bit weak, that's a bit rubbish, obviously no one cares, so why the hell should I? It's better to have no rally. No, I don't don't get right. I mean, however bureaucratized, however limited, how much they, however much they would like to limit it, doesn't mean to say we, the rank and file, have got to go along with their schemes. There has to be better organization, and it has to come from the rank rank and file of the working class, and not these careerists. Oh no, they're they're doing it. Who are very, very limited in what they want what? and what they want. Then no, there's no. just a bloody, you know, Bill Shorten as Prime Minister. Whoopee. Well, yeah, I know, I know. Yeah. All right. Um, now, the, the, I wanted to have a little chat about just Prime Minister's uh, uh, Abbott's contempt for the poverty stricken Aborigines living in outback area. And <coughs> this was opened, uh, opened up last week when he was asked about plans by the Western Australian government to shut down many rural communities. I'm quoting Abbott here. What we can't do is endlessly subsidise lifestyle choices if these choices are not conducive to the kind of full participation in Australian society that everyone should have. Uh, He's talking about subsidising Aboriginal lifestyles. However, subsidising rich people's lifestyle is a completely different order of things. To claim that the Aborigines are indulging in a lifestyle choice akin, as it were, to upper-middle-class people moving to a rural retreat is absolutely grotesque. The conditions in remote Aboriginal communities, they don't have jobs, proper housing, essential services, are described as third-world or even fourth-world. People choose to remain in these fabulous lifestyles because of the connection they have to family, friends and tradition, and the alternatives are even worse. To move from the remote community into a town where there's no employment, where you are actively racially discriminated against, is, is not remotely appealing to Aboriginal people, and sh- nor should it be. But moving out is exactly what the Western Australian government is preparing to force these residents to do. It's already made threats to shut down 150, that is more than half, of the remote Indigenous communities in the state. It will render up to 12,000 men, women and children, Aboriginals, Driving them from under-resourced, uh, driving them into under-resourced town and urban centres. The aim of ba- closing b- Aboriginal communities is not simply to cut budget spending by eliminating even the pathetic level of basic services to the settlement, but rather to open up the land to pastoral mining and other business interests. The plans to shut the communities were flagged last September in response to the federal government's decision to cease funding municipal and essential services, such as power, water and rubbish collection, and hand them over to the states. Aborigines people in these communities, also known as homelands or our station, amongst the most poverty-stricken, vulnerable and oppressed layers of Australian society. Far from the government endlessly subsidising these remote communities, successful governments, Liberal and Labor alike, have been engaged in decades of underfunding and neglect aimed at starving the residents out. Access to electricity, running water and sewerage is rudimentary, even if it exists at all. If these, uh, and housing is inadequate, overcrowded or dilapidate. You know, 20 people living, living in a house, five and six people living in a room. The decision to live in outstations is not a lifestyle choice. A return to traditional lands for many 
is the only way they can escape the unemployment, alcoholism, substance abuse and other horrors in the town fringes, living on the banks of rivers on the outside of country towns. <clears throat> Abbott's lifestyle choice was condemned by Bill Shorten and an array of uh, right-wing Aboriginal bureaucrats like Noel Pearson and Warren Mundine. These denunciations by these people are utterly, utterly cynical. They are mainly directed at Abbott's choice of words, not the substance of his policies. <laughs> the deliberate rundown and closure of remote communities have been taking place for more than a decade, beginning under the Liberal National Government of John Howard and continuing under various Labor governments. What about the other one? Is it Mundine, Pearson, and is it Langton, the other one? Langton, yeah, but yeah. Marcia Langton. What about Marcia Langton? Well, she's in the same category. Abbott, Uncle Tom, as they used to call him. Right. Abbott's call for more government cuts to, cuts to remote communities is in line with the Northern Territory intervention, which was the police takeover of Aboriginal settlements launched by the Howard government in 2007. The intervention's array of anti-democratic measures including welfare income management and alcohol bans, were supported by Labor from the outset and extended by the subsequent Labor governments. In 2009, the Federal and Northern Territory Labor governments introduced, quote, working futures, with the aim of forcing an estimated 10,000 Aboriginal people living in 508 settlements into just 20 so-called growth towns. In reality, the politics of the Abbott government and its predecessors are directly responsible for the social crisis today facing Aborigines. Nothing was said in the report about cuts to, to remote community funding and the more than $550 million slashed from Indigenous programs from last May's federal budget. That Abbott has said not a word about. Moreover, these attacks on the Aborigines a warning of a savage austerity measures being prepared for us, the working class as a whole, with policies like welfare quarantine. First trialled on Aborigines in the Northern Territory have already been rolled out in working class suburbs. Basic cards, I've seen them in working class areas. Yes. Well, well, tell me about that. It's basically where they quarantine... Uh, Aboriginals would started with the North. No, 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 not just the, the Aboriginals in the remote communities. Tell me about the, the suburbs. Oh, well, they give um, people get who have seen to be, you know, in trouble, get these basic cars, and it means that their welfare is put onto them and they can only shop at particular places. Uh-huh. A lot of the time there's uh, paternalistic, um, like with people in public housing, where they literally take the rent out of their benefits each month, giving them absolutely no choice or autonomy. And, of course, rent is expensive. And the people choose this, or this is forced upon them? It's forced, forced upon, upon them, yeah. Is it? Yeah. Because of drugs, addictions, alcoholism, gambling. Well, that's, that's just... the pretext. But, you see, they're introducing it to white working-class people who don't necessarily have alcohol, the same problems that the Aborigines have. I've, you know, heard, of, I've heard of people who well, are... You can, they just you think can that be they... a white alcoholic or a drug well, addict, so, yes. and there's plenty around. Yeah, people, it's just been introduced to people, and they think that they have absolutely no choice, and then they have to fight and fight to get to try and get off these quarantining measures, is what I've heard. Mm. So they just present it as if you've got no choice, I think. Mm. But I think the, the point we've got to grasp is neither the Labor Party nor the Liberal Party have a different policy in this. Uh, having Aborigines sitting on mining land is just too horrible for the Australian capitalist class to contemplate. Mm. And if throwing dirt at Aboriginals, making them look like, 
you know, no-ho bludgers who want to live a life of luxury in these faraway tropical paradises. I'm talking well, the, the, nonsense, the, the, of course. The rem- remote communities. So remote, I think there's something there in the word remote, isn't there? Well, remote means how, how, how would you, a long way away with define, no services. A long way away from what? Well, uh, uh, from uh, the uh, economic uh, hubs Sydney, that the government uh, wants well, to create. Well, they're away from services. They're away from. Well, they're away from cities. They're away from centres as service centres, and they're away from basic services. But the government's done this on purpose. It's making, like during the Northern Territory intervention, it talked about these economic hubs, which are basically ways of like you could only buy food with these basic cards in these economic hubs. And so you had like economic refugees where Aboriginal people would go to get food, which oftentimes the designated shops are more expensive than other ones, mm. and then they can't afford to go back home. And so they, it's just another way of trying to get people off their land. That's right. That's what the aim is. That's and and aim is. T- towards the services, you know. Well, you know. Um, um, see, when I saw this stuff, and then yesterday it was, you know, Mark Dreyfus, the old Attorney General, who's Jewish, and he has to, everyone has to know he's Jewish. Mm-hmm. But uh, he was uh, upset because Abbott apparently yesterday made a comment about Goebbels. When Dreyfus, and a whole lot of people have made comment about Goebbels, they'd be lucky to have Goebbels on board. Very good propagandist. But uh, this week it seems that he got the trifecta, Mr Abbott. I think he does it deliberately. Aborigines, Irish and Jewish people. See, I disagree. I, really think, I, think, I really the, think the Aboriginal thing is different. That I really is serious. think it's a bit more serious. But yeah, a bit more serious. A bit more, yeah, you know. But Kicking still, Aboriginal people off their land is essential to Australian but when, capitalism. When, mm. when, when Tony Abbott is upsetting Michael Danby, who, you know, when it comes to Israel policy, is very much a friend. You know, mm-hmm. he's officially his Labour Party, but I mean, he's just about the biggest. He'd be the biggest Zionist, the most important Zionist in Melbourne. Dandy, yes, that yes, is. Yeah, you know? yeah I think and that, that's fluff, out, but not the Aboriginal stuff. Fluff. A lot of it is, you know, a fishing expedition, and I'll be making but, sure but, uh, that Kim's I right. Buy, the Aborigines you know? are yeah. big. Why? <clears throat> it would be a fishing expedition if they didn't give a bugger about their land, but they do. They, they do. want their land, and the mining companies want their land. And they wanted free of this, what they consider bullshit of traditional ownership, traditional claims of land. Get them off. That's what the mining companies are crying. And so every time they can demean the Aborigines, make it out as if they're, they're bludgers whose it's their own fault, uh, they will take it. Just before we, it's 10.30 and it's your chance to ring up uh, and have a chat to us on 94190155, 94190155. Zero one double five. I received another letter from a Mr. Neil Quigley, who's written to me before, but he doesn't have the courage of his convictions in the sense that he puts a false address on there. And I replied to his first letter, and my letter was returned. So, Mr. Quigley, if you uh, if you object to this program, I love receiving your uh, emails, but please have the courage of your convictions and put your actual address on there. All right, not an unreasonable thing to ask. The number to ring is nine four one nine zero one double five nine four one nine zero one double five. I did think that that thing on St Patrick's Day was a bit of well, that was definitely a distraction. Yeah, sure it was. Like I mean, him with his and green the Gobbles comment was a distraction yeah. too. You know, I mean, he throws this stuff out there. And this this way he did it three times. I mean, come on. I think on, he did it twice. Wake up. Yeah, he no, did no, it twice. He did it twice. I think that he, he, he knew. You're missing the point he, about the Aborigines. Yeah, but when he used the words, yeah, but you get back to what Noel Pearson was it Noel Pearson? I think no, Warren Mundine. Well, Warren Mundine has to because he's in the pay of Abbott. But uh, when he used the words um, lifestyle choice, that's deliberate. Comment. Who? 
Tony Abbott, when he uses the word live lifestyle choice, that, is the, well, that, you, that, you, that gets the headlines. I and not the actual policies, but that gets the headlines. And when he refers to Irish people drinking or he refers to Goebbels, that gets the headlines. And that's a fishing expedition. Yeah, but it's I, not just the headlines he wants. It's not just the headlines he wants. He wants to prejudice you to, to, to make... To make out as if the Labour, the, the Aboriginals' connection to their traditional lands, which has gone on for 60,000 choice, he wants to reduce that to blacken the Aboriginals' name by calling it a lifestyle. Yeah, but he's deliberately a, using that word. Yeah, but it's to cohere exactly. the right, because they so, like to they say everything's a lifestyle choice. That's a cohering the right, I but think. Mundane, so if you're poor, it's a lifestyle yeah, choice. Yeah, but you were saying that Warren Mundine, I think it was, he was emphasising the words and not the policies. Is that right? Warren Mundane. Well, I'm, I, See, I, all and I a know lot is, of people did. A lot of people focused on the language, political correctness. A lot of people focused on the bloody language. Don't care about the language. Look at the policies. Well, yes, but the, po- the policies, they were using life, the word lifestyle as a way of undermining the Aboriginals' claim to their own land. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.